This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome to The Political Party. This one features former Prime Minister Tony Blair, who of course has been on the show before in the live monthly format and this is the first time I've had him on the weekly show. And what a time to be talking to him specifically about Brexit and about what happens next, what he thinks should happen next, about uh, leadership, about protest, about a variety of things all around Brexit and the backstop and the politics of the whole thing. If you want to hear someone talk about the situation we're in with clarity and with purpose, uh, then this will be an absolute treat for you. Um, thank you to everyone who's already been to see me on tour. It's been a, such a treat, and Camberley, Gloucester and Salford were all so enjoyable. So thank you to everyone who's come to those. Uh, and the tour rumbles on uh, in the next few uh, weeks. Maidstone, Leicester, North Allerton, Darlington, Barnard Castle, Hexham, a load of London dates, Stafford, Cambridge, Corby, Bristol, Faversham, Aberystwyth, Edinburgh, Glasgow, Newcastle and Chorley, perhaps with a few more to be added as well. I shall leave you for now in the capable hands of Tony Blair. Hello, I'm Matt Ford and I'm here at the office of Tony Blair, the Institute of Global Change, to talk about Brexit. Tony, it's nearly three years now since we had the referendum. People are sick and tired of talking about Brexit. Everyone's bored of it. Isn't the best thing just to get on with it and deliver it as soon as possible? Well, the best thing is to get on with it and make a decision about what we want. The trouble is, what the government's proposing now is, is essentially the very thing they promised wouldn't happen, which is a kind of blind Brexit. So if you look at the, the withdrawal agreement the government's come up with, the deal, when it comes to the future relationship between Britain and Europe, it's completely vague now. So we don't know whether we're getting a soft Brexit, a hard Brexit, what type of Brexit. And to leave in those circumstances means you won't get on with it. You'll just have the same arguments we're having now, we'll be having for the next two or three years, maybe more, but just in a different form. But the public mood is one of exhaustion, isn't it? People are bored of it. Most people yeah. are busy and they just want it dealt with. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I completely understand it. So what people want is closure. You know, they want an end to the thing. But no clarity, no closure. So if you postpone the essential decision about what the future relationship with Britain and Europe is, if you postpone that decision, you postpone the closure. And this is the problem because in the end, the, the, the whole difficulty with Brexit is you've been four and a half decades in this unique trading system in, in Europe. So when you think of the companies like Nissan, for example, that have come and set up in the UK precisely for the European market, or you take, you know, London's the financial centre for the single currency, even though Britain's not part of the single currency. So all of these complex um, investment and commercial decisions, the whole of our economy has been structured around the fact we're part of that trading system. The problem with Brexit is very simple. If you pull yourself out of that trading system, you're going to cause yourself damage. 
On the other hand, you go for a soft Brexit, which is what some people want, and you say, okay, we're going to carry on abiding by the rules of Europe, but we leave the political structures. All you've done is give up your seat at the table. So this dilemma, as I call it, between the painful Brexit and the pointless Brexit, is why Parliament can't reach a decision. So what have they decided to do at the moment? That is, let's not come to a decision. Let's just leave and then work it out afterwards. But that is crazy for the country to do, because then you're in a situation where you've given up all your negotiating leverage and you haven't even made a decision. You're, you're in support of a people's vote and of the referendum. You won three general elections. No one ever said, oh, well, let's go back and contest 2005 or 2001 because now we disagree with what he's doing. Yeah, sure, but we always knew there another election was coming up, by the way. <laughs> so, um, no, that, that's, that's right. But I think there are two reasons for, in my view, for a fresh referendum. One is just the, the natural consequence of back in June 2016, of course, we were voting to leave the European Union, but we didn't know what we were getting in its place. Now, my whole point is, once you know what you're getting, isn't it entirely reasonable to say, let's compare what we have with what we're going to get and then see if we want to proceed? So I think there's a case for a second referendum in any event. But that case is today infinitely stronger because of the mess. I mean, you, no one can dispute that this thing has been anything other than massively more compli complicated, very divisive. Parliament can't agree. The Prime Minister had a deal voted down by a massive majority in Parliament. You've got a split cabinet, a split government, a split Conservative Party. Actually, even the Labour Party split to a degree on it. Isn't it, in those circumstances, why is it so unreasonable to say to the people? I mean, it's not, we're not asking a different people. We're asking the British people. In these circumstances, do you really want to proceed or not? But having another referendum and winning one are two very different things, aren't they? The, the social problems that underpinned the Leave vote have not been addressed since 2016. What makes you think that people would vote any differently this time? Well, I agree, it's going to be a battle, whatever you do. But I think the thing that would be different this time if the campaign is fought in a proper way is, look, I understand the reasons that gave rise to Brexit. There are anxieties about immigration, and you know, we, let's deal with those in a moment, as it were. But there are also anxieties about communities left behind, people feeling you know, their lives are pretty hopeless. Um, you know, globalization may work for some people, but hasn't worked for others. The thing is, it's, it's not an answer to any of these problems to get out of the European Union. Yeah, but we, we said that in the first referendum. That's true. And people rejected that and decided that it was. But part of the, the problem in that first referendum is we never really attacked the whole basis of the Brexit case. The basis of the Brexit case is we're not an independent country. We don't make our own rules. Europe makes the rules. And as a result of that, you know, we've lost our sovereignty and we can't sort our own problems out. It's a myth. You know, we make our own rules. I mean, if your problem's the health service, we're in complete charge of the health service. If your problem's your kids not getting properly educated, we're in charge of our education system. You want taxes up, you want them down, we decide it. You want more spending, you want less spending, you want austerity, you don't want austerity. These are decisions that British politicians are responsible for. The only rules that we have given up, as it were, complete sovereignty over are those we've agreed should be part of this single market arrangement so that you can trade more easily, which actually, for many of those constituencies, for example, in the north of England, has meant more jobs and more investment, not less. But some of those places voted leave. So what do you say to MPs who, whatever their view, have a majority of leave or remain voters in their constituency? Should they represent the, the will of the people in their territory mm. Or do they have a duty to their constituents to say what they really think? Yeah, so I'm, I'm incredibly sympathetic, <clears throat> having been a member of parliament for 25 years, and actually 
for a constituency that voted heavily uh, leave. You know, I'm really sympathetic to the anxieties that MPs have that, you know, if the people have voted for this, then surely my job is just to deliver it. So I think if, if I was still in Parliament, I would be doing what actually my successor for the Sedgefield constituency is doing. Because he's saying to his people and to the constituency, look, I can't, I can't hand on heart tell you Brexit is going to make any of your problems better. In fact, I think it's going to make it worse. But that's my view. But I will allow you, the British people, and you, the people in the Sedgefield constituency, to take the final decision. But I can't, when I look at this deal, tell you it's going to make your life better, because I think it isn't. And my job is to represent you to the best of my judgment as to what's in your interests. I, I think that's an argument that works for people, particularly if you say to them, look, let's talk about the health service. You know, let's talk about jobs. Let's talk about austerity. In, it, to what degree does leaving the European Union sort these problems out? It doesn't. And so I think part of the trouble is that we, we haven't made these big arguments to people in the, in the right way. Because, you know, for, for a constituency in the north of England to vote to leave the European Union on the basis, you know, they, they want greater opportunities in the economy, I mean, Brexit's not going to deliver any of that. Immigration, I think, is the one difficult question. That, that I think, is more difficult. But again, we have complete freedom to decide our rules on immigration from outside Europe. Within Europe and freedom of movement, I think there are real problems with the way freedom of movement is operated. In my view, if we do go back to the people, we should also negotiate with Europe, and I think Europe would be very willing to consider this, um, a Europe-wide arrangement where we put greater controls on freedom of movement to ensure, for example, that you don't get cheap labour imported in from particularly Eastern Europe, and undercut wages here. That is also an issue in the rest of Europe. And so if you want to deal with these problems, you can deal with them, is my basic point. But David Cameron tried to negotiate with Europe in the run-up to the referendum, and we've all been watching the BBC documentary uh, this week about how little he was able to get. What makes you think that Europe would give us something now? Because the whole politics of Europe's changed in the last 30 months. I mean, our politics has been upended, but their politics has been upended. I mean, look at Italy. Look at what's happening in Germany. Look at what's happening in France. You know, we, we've got to, under, I, I think where I differ from some of the people who are in the Remain camp is that I think with this populism, and Brexit's a manifestation of that, you can't defeat it unless you deal with its underlying grievances. And one of those undoubtedly in the British context was anxiety about the way freedom of movement operated. The change in Europe in the last 30 months is that people sometimes say, well, freedom of movement was a British problem, it wasn't a European problem. That's not true. It's a European problem as well, and when you talk to people, particularly actually on the left today in Europe, they will tell you it's a problem. In terms of who's responsible for how we got here, a lot of people say it's David Cameron's fault. Some people would say, well, Tony Blair allowed huge immigration into this country, and you, you summoned the genie of the EU when you promised a referendum on the Lisbon Treaty. Is some of this your fault, do you think? Well, <laughs> you know, I'm always prepared to take responsibility for decisions I take, but this is not... Um, you know, I, I find it hard to take responsibility for Brexit since I'm so passionately opposed to it and was opposed to the referendum. But no, you, you, let me just deal with the transitional arrangements we introduced in 2004. I mean, it's a completely different economic situation. We could have kept um, freedom of movement, of course, came in immediately. Freedom to work, we could have delayed for seven years. I think, you know, if I'd still been in power and I'd realised this was a growing problem, I would have been trying to deal with it. But, you know, 
in the end, part of the trouble with this is that now we've broken down, I think this is the other thing with freedom of movement, now we've really broken down the component elements of who is coming from Europe here. What do we find? You know, we find that there are significant numbers of people who are highly skilled, we need those. There are significant numbers of people who come as students, we need those. There are a lot of people who come to our National Health Service, we need those. And there are people who are less skilled, but are seasonal workers, and we need those. When you actually, this is part of the problem with all this, when you actually narrow it down, there's people who come without a job, looking for a job. Again, there are ways that we could deal with this problem if we wanted to deal with it. But you know, there are actually a small number of the people that come from, from, um, from Europe. And the irony is, since we had the referendum, we virtually halved the numbers coming from Europe, but we've doubled the numbers coming from outside of Europe. So immigration itself is still there. And we can't do anything about the non-EU immigration? Well, we could. We could stop it all. I mean, migration from outside Europe, Britain's got complete sovereignty over. We're not part of Schengen. I mean, one of the odd things about the whole situation we've got ourselves in is that many people in Europe think Britain was in the perfect position. We're not in the single currency and don't have to join unless we want to. And we're not part of the Europe-wide immigration arrangements and don't have to be unless we want to. So outside of Europe, we could reduce immigration by whatever numbers we wanted. We don't, for reasons that, by the way, are perfectly good reasons, because provided immigration is properly controlled, immigration is a good thing and not a bad thing for a country. The backstop has been a huge part of this discussion. Um, do you know what it is? Because <laughs> yeah. a lot of people seem to struggle to explain it. Uh, well, How would you explain the backstop in a sentence or two? So the backstop is to make sure that the border between North and South in Ireland remains open if the government and Europe can't agree a different way of keeping it open. And the backstop is to keep us locked in, essentially, a customs union with Europe. So at the moment, I, I, I think I'm right in understanding this, there is literally no technology that exists on Earth, and we have to assume elsewhere, that would allow that border to remain <laughs> porous. Correct. And everyone accepts this. There's no one saying, actually, I've got a technological solution. Well, there are some people saying that, but they're completely untested. So what the Europeans, by the way, are saying is fine. If the technology works, fine. But if it doesn't work, we have the backstop. So at the, just to be absolutely clear, there is literally no solution at the moment other than an agreement to find an agreement at a later date. Yeah, that's right. And that's why you have the backstop. So it's not, by the way, this is again part of the sort of mythology around this. So it's agreed by both sides. You've got to keep the border between North and South of Ireland open. And the reason for that is since the creation of the Republic of Ireland back almost 100 years ago, we've always kept the border open. So you've always had those open border arrangements um, and, you know, freedom of movement of people and so on and so forth. But Ireland, Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland have always been in the same relationship to Europe as each other. Yes. So when the European Union was created, the Republic wasn't in Europe, Britain wasn't in Europe. Okay. We then joined on the same day in 1973. Okay. We joined yeah, on the same right. day precisely because we realised we had to keep the same status, north and south of Ireland, uh, as each other to, to Europe. Now what's happening for the first time, that border between north and south is going to be the hard border for, for Europe. So this is the problem. So the British government agreed with Europe, we'll keep the border open. So in a sense, you know, the Europeans are perfectly prepared to say, for example, we can keep Northern Ireland in a different relationship to Europe from the rest of the UK, but then the DUP, who are 
Theresa May's coalition partners don't want that, so you can't have that. So they're prepared to look at all sorts of arrangements. But the backstop is simply there to say, OK, if we can't create some newfangled device to track goods and bits of goods going across the frontier, because this is now the external border of Europe, we've got to have the backstop. But you can understand why leavers would say, well, this is just a way of keeping us in the European Union by the back door. Well, then, I mean, the simple answer to that is, I mean, not that I would agree with it, but you say, well, we're prepared to have Northern Ireland a different relationship um, to Europe and the rest of the UK. But then Scotland says, yeah, well, I'm, But this is the consequence of Brexit. I mean, the thing with these guys is they advocate Brexit and then kind of say to everyone else, go figure out the consequences. <laughs> and you say, well, what do you say is the solution to this? No, no, there's just got to be a solution. You find that. It's, 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 it's unbelievable, actually, when you, you think of the way these guys, I mean, they've literally got a whole series of completely incompatible negotiating objectives. So you, you remember when David Davis used to stand up in the House of Commons and say, we will deliver a new relationship with Europe, which is exactly the same benefits as the single market and with the freedom to make our own rules. And people like myself said at the time, this is impossible, you're not going to do this. No, no, we'll do it. And then they don't get it, and then they resign from the government, and then say to the government, you go and fix it. I mean, to be fair to Theresa May, it is, it is an absurd position she's been put in by these people. I mean, I don't agree with her way of getting out of it, but you know, she is literally surrounded by people making totally incompatible negotiating objectives as sort of priority for the, for, for the government, and then just saying to her, well, go and sort it out with Brussels. In terms of the politics of it, because you had the occasional troublesome minister or uh, people that would resign or people that you had to uh, force to resign, how would you have handled the situation that she's had just ter- purely in terms of the personal politics of Brexit <laughs> secretaries and foreign secretaries and all the others resigning on such a regular basis? So, look, it's a difficult job being Prime Minister. I know this, so at one level I have complete sympathy for, for the dilemmas that she faces. But I really think the basic problem is that she or the people around her or you know, the, the, the key players in government, they never sat down right at the very beginning and understood the complexity of the choices and the need, in a sense, to educate people and to lead people through to an understanding of what those choices are. Because in the end, the choice comes to something which is at one level quite simple, but its consequences are very complicated. You either stay close to the European trading system to minimize economic damage, or you break free of it. And that will be painful. So what they never did right at the outset is set it out for people and say, look, here are the choices. Instead, what they tried to say is, look, you can have your cake and eat it. You can, you know, you, you can be part of this trading system and we can still have the freedom to make our own rules. I mean, that was never going to happen. You know, never. And it's not, it's really what I often say to people is this negotiation was less a negotiation than a choice. You know, which do you want? You can do this Brexit or that Brexit, but you, this sort of in-betweener thing, which was, you know, you do a, you, you, you say you're going to minimise your, your economic damage because you, you're, you're going to have access to the single market, but you've got freedom to make your own rules, as if the rest of Europe was going to say, yeah, sure, you make your own rules, but we'll all abide by these rules. I mean, they were never going to say that. We wouldn't say that if we were in their position. This is the problem. What about the Labour position, then? Because it's a party you um, used to be very fond of. Um, I'm still you... fond of the Labour Party. <laughs> <laughs> do you... Um, 
What, what about the position that Labour in them? Because they're trying to hold together a coalition of Leave and Remain voters. And the Leave voters are quite important to Labour's current poll rating and to their standing at the last general election as much as Remain voters are. Aren't they better trying to have, to continue this constructive ambiguity, keeping both camps happy in order to get rid of the Tories? Yeah, but the risk has always been that at a certain point, this constructive ambiguity becomes destructive indecision. And we're at that point. They're in danger of, look, the Leave people think they're playing around with Brexit and the Remain people think they're not supporting Remain. So, you know, look, you can debate where the polls are, but let's be clear. I mean, this is not a government in disarray. This is a government in profound, in a profound state of dysfunction. And, you know, we're not actually ahead. But so, people have sort of got used to it, haven't they? I mean, do you sense that, that the public just go, well, this is normal now, we're used to this chaos, and they're kind of... They're almost, in a bizarre way, sort of fine with it. No, I think the public is quite worried about the current state. I mean, I think you're right. That I'm worried about it, and I know a lot of other people yeah, are. But I've talked to people who say, well, let them just get on with it. The politicians are always arguing and resigning. Yes. This is kind of fine. I think most people understand this is qualitatively different from anything we've faced in, 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 in recent times. And I think, you know, unless you're just shutting your eyes to it, I think there's a lot of damage being done to our economy now, even now. Um, and I think confidence inside and outside Britain is, is corroding. I mean, I think even if you cancelled Brexit tomorrow, so you just said, OK, we're not doing it, I think it would take you some years to repair the damage. In terms of Theresa May, and, and you've done the job, obviously, uh, for quite a bit longer than she probably will end up doing it, um, isn't she not just being bullied by people inside a party in the ERG and the Cabinet? She's also being bullied a little bit by the EU. I mean, are you disappointed to some extent by the way that the European Union has handled this process? I think the European Union is really, I mean, the, the, the sort of, um, obviously part of the right-wing sort of theme throughout all of this is that these unreasonable Europeans are refusing to budge and That's so on. That's on the left so. as well a bit. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. But the fact is the Europeans, they're just, they're setting out the reality. And they're saying to us, what do you want? And so, you know, as I was just explaining on the backstop, there are any number of different solutions, but what you can't have is the solution the government wants, which is, you know, essentially variations of the cake and eat it thing. So Europe, for example, on, on the future relationship, they could offer us something like Norway, something like Switzerland, something like Canada-style free trade agreement, actually probably something like Turkey and the customs union. But what they're saying to us is, tell us what you want. And then the reply that comes back is, is a sort of mix of either, well, we want everything, um, or it's, well, we haven't, we're not. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Sure. But on the backstop, so Theresa May got an agreement of sorts on the floor of the House of Commons last week. The European Union know how difficult it's been for her. She's managed to get some sort of agreement that's still pretty vague. Shouldn't they just, for the sake of politics and for harmony, say actually we'll accept this new deal that, that you managed to get through? Yeah, but hers isn't a deal. Hers is just an instruction to go back and negotiate with them. I mean, the deal that she wants is to say effectively, you've got to keep the border between North and South open, but I'm not guaranteeing that we can, we, we, we can have the trading arrangements in place that allows that. So that's the problem with what, I mean, the Europeans are perfectly happy to say, you know, you've, we've all agreed we keep the border open. Let's look at all sorts of different ways we do that, but not you keep the border open, but you haven't agreed trading arrangements that keep it open or some of this new technology that they say they're going to discover. And likewise, on the future relationship, what you find when you talk to the, the, the European negotiators, they say, we keep asking the British government, what is your position? Do you want to, to have a close relationship with Europe in the future, like Norway, or do you want to go to just be a third-party country like Canada and have an ordinary free trade agreement? And they can't get an answer. And the reason you can't get an answer, and this is the fundamental problem today, is not actually the backstop. It's the vagueness of the political declaration around the future relationship. If you end up in a situation where you haven't decided that, then you're literally stepping into a void after you leave. And the reason why the government's come to that position is that the cabinet's not agreed. I mean, if you take the Liam Foxes of this world, they want a Canada-style agreement. You take the Philip Hammonds of this world, they want a Norway-type arrangement. This is fundamental. So because they can't agree, and this is where the country's literally held hostage this debate in the Conservative Party, because they can't agree, what she's finally decided to do, because remember, she tried with checkers to bring some form of clarity. Yeah. What happened? She had a whole lot of slew of resignations. <laughs> she looked at that and thought, I can't afford any more of those. So now she's retreated into absolute ambiguity. And now they make a virtue of that. So you've got conservative MPs who are passionate soft Brexiteers, want Norway. Conservative MPs who are passionate hard Brexiteers, want Canada, uniting together to say, let's just get the other side of March 2019 and sort it out. It's a crazy thing for the country to do. So you talk about March uh, the 29th, which is just a few weeks away now. What do you think the most likely thing is? Do you think we're going to delay Article 50? Do you think we're going to crash out with no deal? Or do you think there's a, a third option? So I think <clears throat> a delay to Article 50 is likely because I think getting all the legislation through is extremely difficult in any event before the end of March. But the question is, if you delay it, what for? Now, my view is if there is any delay, it should be delayed to have clarity. Decide before you leave where you're going in the future. Okay. No deal, I think, is highly unlikely, because I just think Parliament will in the end prevent it, and I think there are probably four or five cabinet ministers who would resign rather than have it. Mm. And no deal, I mean, to crash out with no deal is so irresponsible. I just, uh, I, I can't believe people are going to let that happen. So I don't think that's, I think the question is, the fundamental question for the next few weeks is do you <clears throat> effectively say, as 
really this is, <clears throat> this is the Prime Minister's position now. Let's just leave and work out afterwards where we go. Resolve all these questions about the future relationship mm-hmm. between Britain and Europe afterwards, after we've left. Or do we return to what was the promise given that you would have a meaningful vote before you leave on the future relationship as well as the withdrawal agreement? That, that's the central question for, for Parliament. And it used to be absolutely accepted that you would have that meaningful vote on the future relationship before you leave. But that's the thing that's in the last weeks. And the backstop, in a way, has got, got in the... It's, it's kind of um, camouflaged that essential question, which is at the heart now, I think, of the, the debate. And my view is if you have an extension, use it to bring the clarity that will bring closure to the issue, either through you decide a soft Brexit or you decide a hard Brexit, or you can go back to the people. What about the left-wing arguments for Brexit? You know, some people would say, well, if we leave, that's not the end of the world. If you were to have a, a fairer economy that, was, that had more redistribution but, but smaller economic growth, actually that's a more desirable society than faster economic growth and, and higher inequality. Yeah, but this is, goes back to one of the great myths about uh, Brexit and Britain's position with Europe. I mean, you can have a left-wing government. I mean, you can have a Jeremy Corbyn government... We sort of had a left-wing government, didn't we, for a while? We had a modern progressive government, <laughs> yes. That did a lot of uh, progressive things, but it wasn't, it wasn't quite in the style of Jeremy Corbyn, no. Uh, but you, look, you can have a Corbyn government, you can have a really small government. Back in the... When I fought my first election in 1983, we had Michael Foote fighting Margaret Thatcher. Now, I don't think anyone was any doubt that Michael Foote would be a different prime minister pursuing a different set of policies than Margaret Thatcher. This idea that you can't... For example, when people say to me on the left, well, you couldn't nationalise the railways, I don't personally think it's a very... I don't think the answer to our transport problems is bringing back British Rail, personally. But if you want to do that, you've got publicly owned railways all over Europe. It's, this is... The left case against Europe is based on a really misguided piece of old ideology, which is that, you know, Europe's some capitalist conspiracy. It's nonsense. Europe is what it is. You can pursue left-wing policies or you can pursue right-wing policies. You, by the way, you can have austerity or not austerity. Europe's literally got nothing to do with whether we have austerity or not. So if that's your big issue, the, the real thing for the Labour Party is if you want to pursue left-wing policies, I mean, as I say, I don't agree with a lot of the Corbyn policy, but if you want to pursue that, the last thing you should be doing is having Brexit. The one thing, if you have Brexit <clears throat> and then you follow it, with a government that's going to take these types of measures that you know, Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell are talking about in relation to business, I mean, then you, you know, fast your seatbelt, because that's going to be pretty tough to do. So if you want these policies, the last thing you should be doing is, is accepting Brexit. Just finally, why not, instead of have a referendum, have a general election, elect a Labour government, and let them renegotiate with new red lines a more progressive form of Brexit? Well, number one, you know, with the great, greatest respect, I mean, whether you have a Conservative government, a Labour government, or something else, you, you, there is no way of some smart, new-fangled Brexit negotiating ploy that's going to deliver, you know, all the advantages of being in Europe without keeping to Europe's rules. So, I mean, this, this negotiating position has always, I mean, frankly, been never very, very credible. A general election, look... In the end, I think this Europe issue is best actually decided on its own merits. 
And, you know, yes, you can have a general election, but I don't think it's likely the Conservatives will, will give us one. But the thing that makes most sense is literally to go back now in the light of all that's happened, in the light of all the knowledge we have and, and the mess we're in and say to the British people, is it, is it tell them again or think again? And that, that's the two, you know, in the end, this is, this is about the two sides of the British psyche in a way. One part of it says, we've told you, we did it back in June 2016, and we just, we're not, I don't want to hear any more, just go and do it. That's one part. The other part of the British psyche, which is, you know, a part of the British psyche, by the way, that can often stand us in good stead. But the other part of the British psyche is saying, no, we've learned a lot in these last 30 months. Let's be smart about this and maybe think again. But there's another part that would say, actually, this is an outrage. I'm actually quite angry that you're asking me again. I mean, do, do you worry about a level of, not civil unrest necessarily from the sorts of people that people have been talking about, like far-right fascists, but from people who aren't usually outraged? Do you, do you not fear that people might take to the streets? Because we're asking them what they think. Well, that's what people say. I know. It is what people say. But I feel they're kind of stoking this deliberately to make it hard to argue for a... I mean, people are going to riot because you're asking them in the light of this mess, do you want to proceed or not? I mean, what is a, how is it a democratic outrage if you go and ask them? And, you know, just imagine this set of circumstances. Supposing when this legislation had been passed for the referendum, you know, David Cameron or Parliament had said at the time, look, we're going to have a referendum... Uh, once we have it, if we vote to leave, then at the end of that process, we'll have a referendum to say, do you like the New Deal or do you prefer to stay? Because then we know what we're getting in, in place of our European membership. I mean, pe most people would have said, yeah, well, that sounds reasonable enough. We're now in a situation where literally these guys say, no, if you ask us again, in the light of all this mess, <laughs> in all these broken promises, it's a democratic outrage. I think, you know, you're just going to have the argument with people. By the way, the thing is, if you do have another referendum, I think this is important to say, that's got to be the end of it. And, you know, if, we, if people vote leave again, for me, that's it. You've got to get on, make leave work. Yeah, but then we'd have to rejoin at some point. You'd have to leave it on the table. You know, say in 15 years, a Labour Party, for instance, should be allowed to go back to the country and say, actually, we want to rejoin the EU. Well, nothing can ever stop us, because despite what people say, Parliament is absolutely sovereign. But I think... If you have another referendum, the only basis upon which it works is a, a pre-agreed, almost like a kind of protocol that says... A vow. Well, I think more than that, actually. I think you actually need both sides of the campaign to say, that's it. Whatever the result, you've got to abide by it and keep with it. <laughs> but people just won't, will they? I, I think, you know, it's one of these issues where I think, I think in the end the British people just want, they want closure to it and I think you know for people like me who voted um, remain and would vote remain again I think if people vote leave in these circumstances for me th this would be okay I'm afraid you know we just gotta we've got to accept that and I actually think the overwhelming desire of the country will be to end the agony of this process and I think at the moment, what's happening is that the country thinks the way to end the agony is just to leave. It's not unless you're clear where you're going after you leave. And that's why you need, in the end, I think the logical thing is to have another referendum. And you simply say to people, what do you want? Do you want hard? Do you want soft? Or do you want to stay? Scrambled. <laughs> well, scrambled is where we are at the moment. <laughs> and I think what we need is an unscrambling process. <laughs>
Uh, there, there have been a number of fence posts in this, in this process, the referendum itself, but then the triggering of Article 50. Do you think it was triggered too soon? Yeah, so I think Article 50 is a really interesting thing. So we triggered Article 50 before we had any idea where we wanted to go in this negotiation. And now, when people look back on it, I think most people think, well, that was a mistake. What we're about to do is repeat that mistake, but on a much grander scale, by leaving the European Union altogether without knowing where we're going. So this is why we should think back and realize the mistake we made at the time of Article 50, and I think a lot of people think that was a mistake now, that is the mistake we're about to do, but on a much bigger scale. I mean, people might not know what Article 50 is. They know what it means. That means that it's, it's basically, it, it triggers a deadline after which you have to leave, and that's going to be on the 29th of March. Do you think in terms of the discussion, there's all these technical phrases running around about articles, about WTO rules, and the public use these phrases a lot of them and say, I'm absolutely fine with the WTO rules. Do you think they always appreciate the magnitude of what these things mean? Well, the, the, the problem with all of this is that it does become extremely complicated. And one of the things I say to members of the public about members of parliament is because they often say, look, these guys are just playing around. No, the members of parliament are doing their day job. Their day job is to study politics. That's what they're put into parliament to do. And they're studying the detail. Most of them do it. <laughs> Most of them do do it, actually, most of the time. But, you know, they're studying the detail of all this. And that's why the thing's a problem, because when you study the detail, you realise it's massively complicated and the choices are really ugly. In terms of breaking it down for the public, because it is, it's technical, I mean, the withdrawal agreement, have you, have you read all 585 pages of it? I can't say I've read every single page in detail, you know, those bits about the European Investment Bank and so on, but I've read the bits, I've read the bits that matter, actually. Because it's hard enough, I've read bits of it and I've read the political statement, I mean, it's, what strikes you first and foremost is it's immensely vague. It's, it's, it's an agreement to reach a future agreement in almost every area. But there are certain areas in which it's, it's troubling. On security, we would now only be consulted informally. I mean, do you think the public have really digested how severe some of the implications of the agreement is? Yeah, no, I think it, it's, it's the, the security side. I mean, that's why former security chiefs are lining up saying, this is going to be really dangerous for Britain. I mean, this is not a good deal. On any basis, it's not a good deal. Never mind the big questions around trade and commerce. It's not a good deal for security, for, for, for future relationships around defence and so on. There's been a kind of pincer movement to bring it down from Remainers and Leavers, neither of whom are satisfied. Have you spoken to any Leavers? Have you spoken to Jacob Rees-Mogg or Boris and said, you know, let's form an alliance and kill this deal? No, I haven't spoken to those two, but I have spoken to a lot of people who are pro-Leave. And, you know, what is interesting to me is that the only leave they really want is a hard Brexit. And therefore, you know, one of the problems is if you leave, we exit the European Union, and then Parliament ends up voting a soft Brexit, you're going to get all these claims of betrayal back again. On the other hand, if you do the hard Brexit that these people want, then it hard means hard. So the people you speak to, are, these, are they friends and family? Um, there aren't, to be honest, many of my friends who are <laughs> strong leavers, <laughs> but I can't really think of any. But no, I can think of, actually, no, that's not true. I can think of some, um, and former colleagues in Parliament who, who are, are leavers and who remain good friends, but we just have a disagreement. And by the way, one of the things I think is really important in politics, and it's something that's kind of gone out of fashion, is, you know, 
I understand why people vote Brexit. I understand, I don't hate people who vote Leave and I don't expect them to hate or disrespect me. I think you can have a respectful disagreement and you know, we need to retrieve a bit of that spirit of politics, I think. And one of the things that's really unfortunate about the country at the moment is that the divisions are, I mean, I, quite, I think the schism is, is deep and, and potentially dangerous. Well, that's why I ask, because it feels, I've spoken to so many people who've fallen out with close friends and family, it's ruined relationships. It's not really a price worth paying, is it, this level of discord? <laughs> well, it's a bit like Trump in America. You know, you find families where some, one person votes for Trump and another person doesn't. It, it's, uh, no, it's the way modern politics is, and that's, but that's a whole other discussion. In terms of bringing people back, someone said that we need to build a golden bridge over which Leave voters can retreat. The tone in which Remainers, or whatever you would call people who don't want to leave the European Union or want a second referendum, what advice would you give to, to those people about the tone of where the campaign, whatever we would call it, goes next and the way we talk about people who voted Leave? You've got to respect why people voted Leave and you've got to respect them. And that's why I am absolutely emphatic on this. You have to take account and deal with the underlying grievances and issues. The only way you're ever going to get people to come, you know, those people who are persuadable, to come out of the Leave position and to accept, by the way, that you, you can indeed have a, another vote of the people is if you're mindful and respectful of why they voted the way they did and you're prepared to deal with some of the underlying reasons, which, by the way, are not just British preoccupations. They're across the whole of Europe. Um, and just finally, if, if we don't get a second referendum, whatever happens, I mean, how angry are you going to get? Are you going to start protesting yourself and taking <laughs> to the streets? Are you going to make banners? It's... it's you know, I'll be sad, actually. I'll be sad because I think we will have taken a major decision with the destiny of our country, which impacts enormously future generations, and will have taken it um, in a way that's highly destructive. Not it's simply about of our economic position and our living standards, though I think it is that, but undermines where Britain has to be in a modern world, in the 21st century, where you're going to find, without the support you get from binding together in Europe, there's no way in the world that's developing you're going to be able to hold your own with the giant powers that are going to be dominating the century. The United States of America, China, probably India. Mm. You know, without Europe staying together, countries of the size of Britain, Germany, France, Italy, you're going to be less able to protect your interests, less able to protect your values, less able to defend and advance your position in the world. And, you know, we will be paying the price for a long, long time to come. So, no, I, it's, anger is not my, I get angry about the way the campaign is from time to time, but my predominant sentiment is, is profound sadness that we should be in this position. And if we leave in these circumstances... Yeah, no, it's, it's a real sense of, of, of grief, actually, about what the country's done to itself. But you would never, don't you, you know, you, you had protests against you in government, that's the nature of the business. Don't you ever think, this is great, I can go on a protest now, I can, I can get a banner, I can paint some rude words on it, and I can march down Whitehall. Yeah, I'm, 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 I always say in politics, you know, the main thing is to try and... You can protest as much as you want, but the main thing is to win power so that you can achieve your principles. And I'm afraid people like me, we're always going to be the face on the poster, not the person holding the placard. 
<laughs> Tony, a pleasure. Thanks, Matt. Thank you very much. Thank you. You can find out more about the Institute for Global Change by following them on Twitter, at InstituteGC, and the same on Instagram. Well, there you go. Tony Blair talking with a clarity and purpose about Brexit that's been sadly lacking. Um, whichever side of the debate I think you're on, you, we can all agree that uh, he talks about politics in a way that still, I think, has a real force to it. Where We talked about Blunkett last week and how straight-talking he is in a very warm way, but he has that sort of blunt northern sound to him, which makes his words have real impact. And Tony Blair has a different style, but he's such a clear thinker. And the words are, are laser-guided. They're so carefully thought out. He's done so much thinking about all this stuff. And I think that's been really lacking, not just in Brexit, but in other political debates that we've had over the last few years. When you sit opposite Tony Blair, you know you're sat opposite, firstly, someone who did the job at the highest level for a prolonged period of time, knows the weight of responsibility, knows how hard it is to take a decision, but you're also talking to someone who still thinks about politics all the time and really thinks about what it means and how to get things done. And to hear, I think what's been really frustrating, and it's not even about where you are on the political spectrum, I think, but the populists have owned, in a way, clarity of thought because they've got easy answers. The people in the middle, it's always harder. There's always nuance. So when you hear people, around, particularly around the centre-left, that can talk with real clarity... It turns out it's really rare. So, what a pleasure it was to talk to Tony Blair about Brexit. Um, as always, email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. Had so many wonderful messages after the David Blunkett one. I think that's already gone down as a classic. But email me about this, politicalparty at gmail.com. Uh, you can follow the Institute for Global Change, which is uh, Tony's organisation that works not just only on, on Brexit, but all sorts of other international issues. They're on Twitter and Instagram, at Institute GC. And you can still see me on tour. Brexit through the gift shop is rolling around the country now. I'm in Maidstone on the 9th of February, Leicester on Friday the 15th of Feb, Northallerton on the 18th, Darlington on the 19th, Barnard Castle on the 20th, Hexham on the 21st. Lovely four-date tour of the northeast there in February. And then in March, the 7th, back at the Southbank Centre, the 8th of March in Stafford, the 12th of March at the Southbank Centre in London, the 14th in Cambridge, the 15th in Corby at the Cube, um, the 19th of March at the Other Palace in London, the 26th of March at the Leicester Square Theatre, the 31st of March in Bristol, and then one day in April at the moment, Faversham on the 5th, and then in May, the 10th in Aberystwyth, my only gig in Wales this tour, the 12th, Edinburgh, 13th Glasgow, 14th Newcastle, 18th Chorley. I think we might be adding some more, but we'll see how things go. And thank you for downloading this. As always, if you can subscribe, if you can share, if you can rate, that already helps other people find it. So thank you very much for downloading The Political Party, and I'll see you next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 
luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.